my goal when they were very small, when they were born, actually, was to make them as independent as possible, as early as possible. Because my theory was kids always like to do things themselves. You know, it shows itself at the age of two when they want to put on their own clothes and their own shoes and the clothes are backwards and the shoes don't fit. But I think that this is something that is innate. Kids want to be independent and we tend to crush it. And so I did the reverse. I enhanced it. I wanted them to learn how to take care of themselves and do a lot of the things early. And so whatever they were interested in, it was kind of Montessori for the home is what I developed. Um, so at the age of 18 months, two years, they could get their own breakfast. And how could they do that? Well, in the pantry, they have a very low shelf. And I put all the breakfast cereals on that low shelf. And in the refrigerator, they could open the door, you know, that little kids know how to do that. And then if I had a small container of milk with a handle, they could pour it themselves. So everything was at kid height, low. They could take their own cereal bowl, take the milk, take the cereal, have the spoon, which also was in a drawer that they could reach, and turn on the TV themselves. At the age of 18 months? At the age of two. Wow. So what did that do? <laughs> Gave me an extra hour of sleep. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to the voice of Esther Wojcicki. Esther and her husband Stan raised three daughters, all of whom are incredibly successful. Susan, their oldest, was employee number 14 at Google, and today she's the CEO of YouTube. Janet is a successful pediatrician at UCSF, and Anne, the youngest, is the founder and the CEO of 23andMe, one of the hottest billion-dollar unicorns of the Silicon Valley. When one of your kids is successful, you can say it's luck. When all three of your daughters made it to the top of their game, there must be a method. And Esther definitely had a method and a clear philosophy on how to raise her daughters. I've spent a fascinating hour with Esther. We talked about her growing up in a poor immigrant family and how that shaped the way she raised her kids. We talked about independence and at what age you let your kids walk to school. We talked about the importance of collaboration and how you get your kids to work together and to care for each other. And we covered many other very timely topics around parenting. This interview had a profound impact on me and on the way I will parent my kids going forward. And I hope that you'll enjoy it as much as I did. I'm Guy Michelin, and this is Raising to Rise, a show about the parents, educators, and mentors of kids who made it to the top of their game. Every week, we'll identify patterns and pieces of advice that hopefully will serve you while on the journey of raising your own kids. So Esther, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you for coming. Of course. I actually wanted to, uh, to start from... The definition of success, because I see when I tell other people that I'm going to interview parents of successful kids, it creates very interesting responses in people, sometimes emotional. And a lot of people say, how do you define success? If somebody is the CEO of a successful company, if somebody is a very successful musician, it still doesn't mean that they're happy. It doesn't mean that they're successful. And your book, which is about to come out next month. Yes, May 7th. It's actually called How to Raise Successful People. So you have it in the title. So that's why I wanted to start from this and understand how you define success before we go into the philosophy and the principles. A successful person knows how to navigate the world and feels comfortable within their own skin and content with what they are doing in life. The fact that they have maybe not risen to the top, but they're satisfied with where they are. And they are happy with where they're going. I know that you have a very clear philosophy and principles and goals, or you, at least you set for yourself. You were very deliberate in the, the way you brought up the kids. Right. And one of the things I've seen in the book is that later on, it seemed like you formalized the philosophy or the principles and you, called, you had a framework, you called the trick. I, as acronym? I did. So I didn't have this in mind back when they were born. I didn't really know what I wanted them 
I didn't know about this. I hadn't analyzed myself. But what I did know, the only thing I knew is independence. And I wanted them to be as independent and as self-confident as possible early on. And then that evolved into this trick, which I took me time to figure out what it was all about. And what it is, trick stands for trust, respect, independence, collaboration, and kindness. And so trust, the first one, that's what I did when I gave them an opportunity to do a lot of things on their own. I was trusting them. And when I trusted them, they trusted themselves. They were like, oh, I can do that. And sure enough, they could. And respect. So, you know, little kids come up with really wacky ideas. I'm sure you're familiar with this. And um, instead of making fun of their ideas, I would listen to their ideas. Some of them were really out there. and Like, let's climb the tree and have lunch up there. No, I don't think that's probably going to work. Um, but others, you know, I could take into account their ideas. And so it was a sense of respect that gave them also a sense of being respected and that they could tell me what they thought. And these are like little kids. You know, you can talk to one. Most people don't talk to their kids that way. They talk to them in baby talk. Right. And so I never used baby talk. You know, I would go to the store. Again, this was... They, they probably thought, I'm, no, they did. This crazy mother is coming in there with her two kids. Well, then later three. So I would take them to the store. It was local lucky store at that point. And since I didn't have a babysitter, they were all there. And I would have them help me shop. And I would talk to them. Even when Susan was eight months old, I was like, here's a peach. Which peach do you think is a better peach? Why don't we take a look and see? And I would have a conversation with her. I can tell you, other people in the store walking by thought that this woman should probably be, her in, be institutionalized. <laughs> but, but it was pretty funny, you know. Later on, you, you can't believe how much they learn, even though they can't respond at that point. That she knew a lot of stuff. And, um, you know, and Janet learned a lot from Susan, you know, she was 18 months younger, but she never thought of herself as 18 months younger. She was like, I can do the same thing Susan can, which, of course, gets made Susan a little angry. <laughs> <laughs> I see it also with my kids. The younger ones always want to outcompete the older. The younger one is always like, how come I'm not the older one? Right. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so we, did, we said trust, respect. And then independence. I gave them a lot of independence. So what would you like to do? It's today's Saturday. What are we going to do today? You know, here are the choices. Um, and why don't you tell me what you think is appropriate? I mean, if I had had the Internet back then, which I didn't, I would have kids researching online places that they thought were good for the, them to go to and visit. And Because um, there's so many places locally. We always think that we have to go far away to see something interesting. But in fact, in every city, there's a lot of interesting stuff. And so I would have them, you know, they were using books back then. <laughs> so you let them basically influence the schedule for the weekend. Influence the schedule for the weekend, right. And my husband and I used, we had one day where we would take them wherever. And um, they had a lot of input into what we were doing and where we were going. And the advantage of that is that when they have input, then they don't whine and cry in the car. Right. Remember that? Right. Well, today, again, you have like the phone. They can sit there. They don't, there's not as much whining and crying. And, but, um, but back then, you know, that was, that was the way it was, you know, because you, you were taking an hour drive and there's nothing to do. Right. And um, so this way they didn't complain because they had already decided they wanted to go. And then they also decided what game they wanted to play in the car. They were like, we invented car games. Um, so, I mean, I don't know. Nobody's really interested in all those games. But, you know, we were, we were picking out types of trees as we drove along. Okay. So it's a biological <laughs> lesson. <laughs> or, I mean, I should botany on the, on the go. Um, 
so that was that was it. But in in doing that, um, they all all felt pretty empowered. Then the other thing I did was swimming. Mm-hmm. If you look outside here, you see a swimming pool. Right. And um, I wanted to make sure that there were no accidents because you read about this all the time. The pool was fenced. The mother went inside for ten minutes, came back out, and somehow the child got in the pool. So this wasn't going to happen to me. So they um, all learned to swim early, very early. And I bought a book. Actually, I have it upstairs. I could show it to you. It's called How to Teach Your Child to Swim. Okay. <laughs> like a very recipe prescriptive book. <laughs> uh, title. Yes. And I thought, well, why not? I'll teach them early, you know, make sure that they can swim. So Susan swam at about um, 20 months. Wow. Um, but Janet swam at 12 because I, I wanted to see, can you learn to swim? It was an experiment for me. Turns out, yes, you can. And that, if you look at the pool, they could swim the length of the pool, not just the width. At 12 months? At 12 months. Wow, that's amazing. But you know how they swim, just so you know. It's, it doesn't look like an Olympic swim. It looks more like a fish in the water. And, you know, because they're, they're swimming with the breaststroke, and then they pop up and take a breath, and then they go back down in the water and then swim some more, and then pop up again and take another breath. But they could do that for the length of this pool, which is, I mean, it's about 45 feet long. It's not that long. But, um, yeah, it turns out you can do that too. Okay, and I, I know I have a lot of questions around sports, so we'll come back to it afterwards because I believe sport is a very important way to develop character. Yes. But I, I just want to come back to the independence part because I read somewhere that you let the kids go to school by themselves. Yes. And walk to school. And that's something that well, when I moved here from Israel, it struck me because in Israel, I used to go to school, I think starting second grade. I went to school and I came back on foot and then... I went down and I played with my friends in the neighborhood the whole afternoon by ourselves. And here you just don't see kids in the streets. The most you can see them are on bike, but you don't see them walking. And I keep asking myself, should I let my kids walk to school? Shouldn't I let them? And I especially remember that the first week we moved here, we drove down the coast and I was sitting with a woman on, on a bench with my son, and then I told my son, go to mommy in the car. And it was like 100 feet away. And the woman looked at me, and she told me, this is America. You don't let your kids out of sight, not even for a second. And it was literally 100 feet away. And it kind of stuck with me, and, and I combined it to the fact that I don't see kids on the street. And so when I read about the fact that the, your daughters walked to school and it sounded like they had a lot of independence around that, I thought I'll bring it up because I'm very curious how you thought about it and also how you think about it today because times have changed. So I think the key is what you just said. Times have changed. And people were not as afraid back then. And I don't think that the crime statistics have changed. I don't think it's worse now. I think it's probably better now. It's just that back then we just didn't, that was not anything we considered. We didn't realize that there was a risk. Um, and so the kids all walked to school by themselves. And the school here is about, um, there's about six houses down mm-hmm. from this house. So they walked to school as early as five, kindergarten by themselves. And um, they walked home by themselves. It was not a big deal, but they weren't alone. Every, all the kids walked home. They all walked to school. There were kids on the street all the time. In this same neighborhood today, you don't see any kids walking anywhere. So what I think has happened is that social media has terrified us all because we hear about a kid in New Hampshire or Florida or Tennessee or somewhere, something bad happened, and then we extrapolate from that experience to our own community. It was like, oh, we can't do that anymore. And, uh, you know, it could happen here. And there are even states in, I don't know which ones, that have laws where you cannot let your children walk alone by themselves certain places. And there was a a couple, I think, in D.C. that let their child, I think it was an 8-year-old or 9-year-old child, walk home by themselves and got arrested. Not the child, the parents. Wow, I didn't know about that. So um, there's, there's, I would call it national fear. Um, of allowing your children to to do things independently on their own. And I think that 
that's difficult. It's difficult for the parents today. I, I can't tell parents, you know, go against the rules and let your kids walk home because I think the culture doesn't allow that anymore. There, but so you, there are other ways to give your children independence without letting them walk alone. Uh, the other thing that you know you can't do, you can't leave your kids in the car alone, even for a minute. Um, you can be arrested for that. And um, in my era, it was no problem. I mean, people left their kids in the car, you know, for five or ten minutes and ran in and did errands. Um, but today, it's against the law. So you know, I don't want to encourage breaking the law. I don't want to encourage people to put their children at risk. But if you go to a community area, you know, any kind of a community where you feel it's safe, I would suggest that you give your child that opportunity to be independent. But especially when they reach adult size, you know, so 13, 14 year olds, I still see people picking up their 13 and 14 year old at school and concerned about letting them walk home by themselves or ride a bike. The question is at what age? Is this appropriate? And I would say if you're an adult size, but you're still a teenager, you should have the right to walk home by yourself from school, provided you're not walking home two miles, you know. Um, that That's my suggestion on the independence. But there's a lot of other ways to give children independence without violating any of those. So if, you ha- if you're parenting these days what what else would you do beside the examples that you already gave to encourage this independence and it, and again when I, I read our interviews with your daughters it's very clear that something that they really value is the independent the self of the, the feeling of being self uh, right. like being independent and being able to do everything or anything so what else would you do if you were raising this era to, to provide the kids with a sense of independence? So you, you can go places within the city where you feel it's safe for them to walk around. So, for example, in my area, it's Stanford Shopping Center. And I don't know how old a, parent would, a child could be for a parent to feel comfortable, but maybe you could let them walk around the store themselves or walk around the shopping center themselves. Um, I let my daughters, my grandchildren go into Target themselves. I got into a little bit of trouble for that um, because Susan is the one that said, you know, Mom, what are you doing? What do you mean, Target alone? I was like, the last time I saw Target, it was pretty safe to me. So (laughs) I don't, I, I would give them that kind of independence. If you're going shopping, I don't know, Whole Foods, Trader Joe's, Safeway, wherever you're going shopping, I would let them have a basket and help buy food themselves. You shop together uh, with your sister or brother or whatever. You, you know, if you have one child, you let them shop alone or make some of the decisions themselves. I think there are lots of places where they can still be independent. Um, but I think walking back and forth, unfortunately, from home is not one of those. So I just want to say here's a big contrast. My daughter Janet is now in Japan, and her children, they live in Tokyo. And I can tell you that in Tokyo, six- and seven-year-olds take the subway themselves to school. And so here's two American kids, hers, right, not speaking Japanese. They also took the subway to school. And the Japanese have just a very different culture of trust and respect. And if a kid's lost, they feel comfortable, you know, talking to an adult and getting help. So whatever the Japanese are doing, it'd be nice to bring some of that culture here to America. I cannot agree more (laughs) to that, yeah. And yeah, she's having, it's an absolutely wonderful experience there. I didn't expect a wow moment so early in my Raising to Rise journey. And this was definitely a wow moment for me. That afternoon, after coming back from the interview, I sat down with the kids and I told them that starting tomorrow, they're responsible to making their own breakfast, their own lunchbox, and even to getting themselves to school on days that I have to leave early. I have to admit that I was a bit nervous, especially after I've seen the mess they left in the kitchen the next day. 
But after a few days, everything came into place. They completely embraced the challenge and they seemed to love it. In hindsight, I guess they feel empowered, they feel independent, and in the process, I even earned an extra 30 minutes of sleep every morning. This theme of independence will come back again and again in this interview. I suggest that you listen carefully, as at least from my perspective, it's very powerful stuff. I just want to bring us back again to the framework so we finish on the rest of the trick. So we yeah. had trust, respect, independence. So collaboration. Collaboration is one of the hardest things for people to do. And I'm sorry to say, but it's probably because everybody wants what they want, right? So, and they don't know how to get it easily. And so collaboration is a skill that has to be developed. How to get along with your peers how to get along with your spouse, how to get along with your kids, and so forth. And um, one of the ways that you promote collaboration is by having projects where two or more kids have to work together on the project. So in the class, in school, my students, have they're working on publications. The, the, I'm not trying to train a generation of um, journalists, although that wouldn't be a bad idea. What I'm trying to do is train people to get along in the world. And so I have hundreds, 700 kids, six other teachers, all working on publications, newspapers, magazines, television, radio. You can't do that alone. It's a project. And it's got a, you have, um, it's public. People read it, see it. And so you learn these collaboration skills by doing something that together with someone else, because your ideas are probably going to be different than the other person's ideas. But how to communicate effectively, how to collaborate effectively, those are, those are the skills we need for the 21st century. And that's part of what I'm doing and what I train kids to do in school. But at home, you can do the same thing. You know, you can kids can do little science projects themselves, or they can actually wash the dishes themselves, you know, or cook a little something them together with their peers. And you'll see that it's not going to be easy sometimes. They're going to fight about it. Oh, no, she put the sugar in and it wasn't supposed to be in. Or, you know, all kinds of things. But if you jump in as a parent and resolve it for them, how are they going to get these skills to collaborate? You need to back off. Let them work it out. Let them figure out how they're going to do it, whatever it is they're going to do. Um, and that's, those are collaboration skills that last for a lifetime. Because as you grow up, I mean, you have to collaborate all the time with your spouse. And if you don't know how, well, then you might end up in the statistics of 50% of the divorced ones as opposed to the 50% that stay together. So you actively and consciously encourage the girls to work together on tasks all the time they act all work together all the time so what would be an example like all three of you cook dinner now all three of you do x do y um well one of them cooks dinner one of them sets the table the third one cleans up or they clean up together or i mean i just looked at this this picture that one of them posted online. It, it's actually hilarious. Um, and it was taken in Europe somewhere. And they're all, Susan and Janet are dressed identically. And they're, so clearly there was some kind of collaboration going on there in the morning. It's like, what are you going to wear? No, you have to wear whatever. And then the th Anne, the third one, she looked like she came from like another family, maybe, or another, <laughs> another century. Um, just, you know, they were all dressed and really sporty looking out, the two of them. And Anne was dressed, she looked kind of like she'd come from, I don't know, the, the 1800s. And, but they all looked super proud of themselves that they had, you know, managed to get themselves dressed this way. And, and then they were all carrying the same thing. You can see that they had somehow collaborated on what they were doing and w how they were going to look and the whole thing. And they still collaborate today, all the time, nonstop, with their kids, their, their kids, my grandkids. So this is fascinating to me because I grew up, I have a brother, and we, we didn't really get along when we were kids. 
and I keep thinking, how do I remedy it with my own kids? So I, how do I make them feel that they have to be there for each other and that we're a family and it's one unit and we're all working together? And that's why I'm, I'm diving on to this point because I want to make sure, I think part of the things as parents that we eternalize the mistakes or the things that we saw at home, and I, I'm trying to be very conscious on the on the bad side of the, how I was parented. I also got a lot of good things from my parents, but there are things that I'm trying consciously not to pass to my kids. So this is one of the things I'm trying to be very conscious and very deliberate on how do I make them feel that they have to stick together, they have to work together, they have to collaborate. So one thing, one way to teach is actually not to lecture, but to tell stories. So I told a lot of stories of... You know, and I also had them, I read a lot of stories to them about collaboration or about stories about people collaborating, you know, fiction stories about animals working together. Um, and, I, and I talked a lot about how important it was to stick together as a family. And part of that came from my heritage. You know, my parents were from Russia and... It was, it was tough for them there. And my grandfather came out of Siberia, um, and he brought a lot of people with him. And I think that, you know, these stories are important to kids. We stuck together. We w worked to help each other. And, and I think you can tell those stories starting when they're very small. They listen. And kids, they don't listen to what you tell them. To do they listen to what they see you do so you need to show the importance of sticking together and working together with other members of your family especially your spouse and then if you have siblings relatives of any kind it just shows how important that is um, my kids are also still friends with their people that they met in kindergarten um, and they all have, you know, several people that they knew for that length of time because we tend to work it out whenever there's a conflict. We're loyal to each other. We help each other. If they start to fight with each other, um, which they do, it's just normal, let them work it out, but then provide guidelines because if you're always jumping in and resolving it for them, then they don't know how to resolve it themselves. So what would be the guidelines? What's the difference? Where's the border between providing guidelines but not solving it for them? Um, well, first of all, they can't hurt each other. You know, that's, that's number one. No yeah. biting. Okay, that's a good rule. <laughs> and no loud yelling or throwing things at each other because that can also be a part of it. Um, but talking to each other and trying to understand it. You can give... The guidelines, like, you guys have, you know, 10 minutes to work this out. And I want you to listen, you know, Jim to listen to John. And why don't you both figure out? You have to set the pattern. Why don't you talk about what you want to do? You talk about what you want to do. Let's see whether you can't work it out. If you can't work it out, well, then both of you come to me and present your idea about, like, why didn't it work out? You know, they'll get into a pattern and then they'll do that on their own as opposed to what what happens in m many cases is they just get really mad. They go in their room or wherever, they hide around, slam the door, you know, and then don't want to come out and talk to anybody anymore. So what kind of skills are they learning in that case? I don't think they're learning anything. As a matter. They're just learning to be mad and not get along. I mean, like I said earlier... One of the most important skills of all is learning to collaborate and get along. Getting the kids to collaborate with Jar Jar is something that's very important for me. I grew up not getting along that well with my brother, and I want to make sure that my kids collaborate and look after each other. There's actually a lot of research in social science that one of the ways to get people to collaborate and to form teams is to give them joint projects where they have to work together to achieve a common goal. 
Ever since the interview with Esther, I've been very deliberate on creating mini projects for the kids where they need to work together. One example is when we go to the supermarket now, I give the kids a part of the shopping list, I give them one of my credit cards, and I let them shop by themselves. So far, it's been working amazingly well. And since this topic is something that I'm really, really passionate about, you have my commitment to revisit it during the season and come back with more examples telling you how it's working. So the last part of trick is kindness. Right. So can you talk a little bit about that? Well, kindness is super important in this world. Kindness, compassion, empathy. We need more of it everywhere. And the way that kids learn kindness is by watching you be kind. So if your kids see you be rude or unkind in many situations and then you expect them to be kind, it won't happen. Never. It's going to work. So they all make mistakes. We all make mistakes. And we all need to remember that and then treat each other with kindness when there is a mistake. And hopefully that will teach them kindness. And I do that in my classes. Uh, I notice that my students copy that model without me lecturing about it. Uh, I think that I modeled that at home. You know, I was always, I was kind to other people. I was kind to the pets that we had. I was kind, it sounds kind of crazy, but you know, I always took really good care of the plants. Does that sound crazy? No. But I love plants. <laughs> and so I want to make sure that they are happy too <laughs> and that they get water and the right sunlight and all that stuff. I, it's kind of nutty. But then, you, you know, there's so many people that can benefit from receiving kindness. And so your kids see you behaving that way. And... Um, and so then they follow your model. So my theory has always been, you know, help one person help the world. And change the world has been, I want to make the world a better place. Why am I here? So I'm here to make the world a better place. At least that's my opinion. And I want to enjoy while I'm here at the same time. And I get a lot of satisfaction from relationships and making people and, in, and helping people. That's why I'm a teacher, right? But if I were an entrepreneur, I would have the same philosophy because, you know, if you're an entrepreneur, social entrepreneur, just any entrepreneur, you're trying to make or produce something to make people's lives better. And um, hopefully you're not going to charge too much for that thing <laughs> so because otherwise they won't be able to buy it. <laughs> So with all these things that you, you just mentioned, and they all make a lot of sense to me, we keep saying that the kids, they watch what you do more than what you say. Yes. And that's something I'm thinking a lot about because, again, I know personally that I have a lot of things that I don't, I don't want my kids to take away from who I am. I have a lot of traumas from growing up. And I know that I've seen in the book that you're saying that the first step, we all tend to parent the way we were parented. And unless we're very conscious and very um, self-aware of our traumas, whether we want it or not, we're going to pass it to the next generation. And so I really connected to this part in the book. Before you even talk about the, the framework and the philosophy and the principles that you say first step, you have to first almost like be, do this exercise with yourself or answer even a, the questionnaire that you have in the book. So you are very aware of what you want to pass to your kids, but you're also very aware of the, those, those traumas that you have and actively work not to pass them to the next generation. So if you can talk a little bit about that, because to me, this is a very important thing to recognize otherwise we're basically eternalizing how we grew up and it's just generations that basically self-perpetuate themselves that's right so you're right it has to be on the conscious level you have to so i made that conscious decision that my children were going to be independent and that they were not going to grow up the way i grew up so 
one of the things that I grew up with was um, the philosophy of spare the rod, spoil the child, which basically meant if you didn't hit your kids, they were going to be spoiled. If you So corporal punishment was in vogue. Um, and my father somehow managed to, that was his philosophy. And whenever I didn't do anything, or I didn't do something I was supposed to do, or for whatever reason, I would get whipped with the belt. And um, the only time that he stopped doing this, you know, I'm five foot ten, is when I got to be this height. I confronted him. But before that, I was in a situation where I was getting hit all the time, and I knew it would, was coming because, you know, you, you see someone reaching for their belt. It's like the next thing you want to do is run away. Um, so I wanted to make sure that this never happened to my children and that, they, that their opinions and ideas were respected. And um, so it was on a conscious level because... My initial gut reaction as a parent was like, if you're not going to do what I say, I'm going to hit you. But, you know, you have to stop yourself and say, well, that is not what I... I hated that, and that didn't teach me anything. And so you have to force yourself on a conscious level not not to do that. And, I mean, I understand where my father came from. You know, he came from a group where that happened to him all the time, too. And... Um, also, I came from a classroom where, you know, you were, it was okay to hit kids with a ruler. I got hit with a ruler on a regular basis. And I would never do that. There was a lot of humiliation in the classroom. And um, they actually used to send the kids to the office. This was Los Angeles Public Schools. I would, was sent to the office, and the principal's duty was to paddle kids. They actually had a paddle. <laughs> And, you know, since I wasn't well-mannered, who knows why, I suffered this unfortunate consequence. Um, and so, I, you know, everybody says, like, you know, what do, what do you want to em imitate or emulate from your childhood? Well, there isn't too much, um, other than my mother was very loving. She, and she never hit me, ever. Um, and I, and so I took after her model. In the book, I recall reading about Lee, your... My brother. Your brother came, or your, your parents came back with your brother from the hospital when he was just born, and you were running to your parents because you wanted to hug your brother, and your father told you something along the line of this... He's, he's a boy, and in this family men come first or something along these lines That's which right. really I felt like a dagger when I read that it was a dagger it was shocking you know and I was five years old at the time and I actually couldn't believe it you know it was just I was just a little girl and that's what he said that you know boys are more important in this family and you know you need to remember that about your brother and I, I somehow thought that maybe this just was a bad day and that things would change, but that was the way it was. And, um, and it continued like that. You know, I grew up in this family where it was an Orthodox family and where the men in the morning, every morning, so I witnessed this, thanking God that they were not born women. And then it began to make some sense to me, you know, as I realized what was going on with, with my brother. Um, I didn't really hold it against him, you know. It wasn't his fault that he was a boy. Um, it, it was more like the culture of the family, that he was always prioritized, his needs were prioritized, his food supply was... Everything was prioritized for him. And then this all led to, you know, you probably didn't get to the part when I was 18 years old, where I wanted, well, I wasn't quite 18, 17. I wanted to go to college. I knew I wanted to go to college. And there had been a dispute in the family starting from the age of 14 about, like, why does Esther need to go to college? You know, because what we just need to do is, you know, she needs to get married, you know, and we have a lot of prospects. And they had a lot of 
parents with, you know, with boys. And this was like what I was supposed to do is to get married and produce more children. And um, when I was 18, you know, I fortunately, I did not want to do that. And I fought against it. And fortunately, I got a scholarship to Berkeley, University of California, Berkeley. I applied to one school. Can you believe that? I, I, I would, you know, I was so ignorant. And my parents weren't helping. And luckily, I got in and I got a scholarship. And they cut me off financially because they're like, you don't have to go to college. We have to save all our money for our boys. And um, so there off I went on a Greyhound bus to Berkeley and with my two suitcases. <laughs> and that was it. Were there any other defining moments in your childhood that really shaped your philosophy for life and the philosophy that you had for your kids? Well, so the most defining moment, I would say, of my life was the death of my brother David. Um, and that was, he was 18 months old. He had eaten, opened a bottle of aspirin and ate some. And my mother saw it, and she didn't know what to do. And being an immigrant, you know, she always thought, well, you know, the, the doctor knows best. Um, and so she called the doctor. And I, I'm not sure. I don't think she was a full-paying patient. I can't believe that she was. But they basically didn't listen. That's the only thing that I can say. Because they told her to put him to bed and see how he was in two hours. So clearly they had just a canned answer of some kind. Well, you know, if a child ingests a lot of poison, they shouldn't be going to bed. And so in two hours he was violently ill. And then we took him to a hospital. There was a, a county hospital where his stomach was pumped, but he was still violently ill, and they wouldn't accept him. And we went from one hospital to another to another, and finally, they took him at the fourth hospital, and he died. And, um, and you what, were there the whole time? Well, I was, they had no babysitters, so of course I came the whole time. Wow. I witnessed the whole thing. And, um, and so what that taught me was that, and I didn't think about it on a conscious level as a child, but, and I didn't even think about it later on, but what it taught me is never to trust anybody in a position of authority. I didn't care what their title was. That if it didn't make sense to me, I wasn't going to do it. And so how was I going to make sure that it made sense to me? Had to read about it. And so I ended up spending a lot of time in the library reading everything. I was, I was not a big fiction reader. Um, I was more of a nonfiction reader because I was trying to like figure out the world. And... Um, and I read a lot of a lot of biology, a lot of anything to do with the body. I did read fiction, you know. Um, actually, I, I my favorite author was Pearl Buck, and I read a lot of her books from China. Um, but that was that was what guided me from then on. It was like that's why I wanted to go to college. It's like I'm not going to end up like this. Never going to be in a situation where I don't know what's going on, and that propelled me to make my daughters independent and that also propelled me to teach kids in school to be as self-sufficient and independent as possible i saw one of the things that caught my eye in the book was that it seemed like you were giving a lot of uh, emphasis to the ages of zero to five oh, yeah, the zero to five and, and also that uh you were thinking a lot about the attachment theory so if you don't mind explaining what it is and how you how you are trying to, to create attachment. So I, I operated on a gut reaction as a mother because, remember, I didn't really want to recreate what I had. And my gut reaction was that children between zero and five, that's when they're formed. I, I had this image in my mind of kind of clay. You know, if, if you try to form clay after it's already been hardened, you can't do it. And I somehow had a feeling that I was tied back to this fact, what can I teach them as early as possible theory? And so I tried my best to, um, in terms of uh, any kind of skill, 
I wanted them to learn it. But in terms of the attachment part, I wanted them to feel that they were protected and loved and accepted for who they are early on. So I did a lot of snuggling and hugging and um, carried them around. And um, fortunately, you know, they didn't really cry very much. I guess somehow must have succeeded in doing it before they cried. But um, but that it was fun for me, you know. I love hugging babies. And the babies seemed to love being hugged. And, and then I, I didn't have any problem when they wanted to get up and run around themselves and do things like that. But at that point, they were already attached. They knew they had somebody in the world that was in their camp and could take really good care of them. It's kind of interesting. In one of the versions of my book being published in German, they refer to me as the panda mom yep. as opposed to the tiger mom. <laughs> interesting. <laughs> and, yeah, it's really interesting. I said, oh, this sounds good. I, I like pandas. <laughs> and so, and um, turns out what the panda does is the panda is a very nurturing mother. They hug and support their child, um, you know, really, really well. The kid has to feel like they understand the world and there's somebody there to help them when they need help. But you don't want to be overbearing either. That's, you know, you don't want to be a helicopter parent where you're constantly programming the child and telling them what to do. There's a distinction, you know. The helicopter parent is like overly programmed, overly um, focusing on the child, making sure that every single thing is perfect. Um, so how, how, where's the balance? So Where's the boundary? Uh, the balance between being a panda and a tiger mom or being a hovering or hovering parent and being making them feel like they have a place in the world and they're protected and they're safe. Because again, going back to the fact that you're not always conscious, you I'm sure a lot of us think that we are pandas, but we're actually tigers. So where is the boundary? And if someone was not very conscious, like what should they what signs should they look at to know that they are on the wrong side of the spectrum? So just think about independence, the whole trust and respect. So can you trust your kid to do something? Can you Give them that opportunity. That's more... The panda mom is basically you're trusting them and loving them and believing in them, and then they believe in themselves. So the helicopter parent is the one that's like, I know everything best. You're going to do it my way. So it's a matter of control. Who is in control? And in the tiger mom thing, the parent is in control. You're going to take the piano... Lesson, you can take piano lessons because I've decided that this is the best way for you to get ahead in the world. And whether you want to take them or not, you're going to take those lessons. And so the, the tiger mom doesn't trust and respect the instincts of the child. They, 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 their theory is that I'm older, I know best. I've already made all those mistakes. I'm not going to make those mistakes again. I wish I would have taken the trumpet and I didn't do it. So you're going to take the trumpet. Um, maybe the kid doesn't want to learn the trumpet. Uh, maybe they want to do something else. You know, so every child has its gifts to the world, and you just nurture those gifts. As that's your role as a parent, you're a caretaker for. You're helping this child integrate into the world with the gifts they've been given. And how do you help them to to find their purpose or their gift? Because again, when I read interviews with your daughters. That's also something they all recognize and they mention that you help them find their passion and their purpose. And there's also a lot of research that shows that people that have a purpose in life, they have much more grit and they're happier. So I, I definitely think that finding this purpose is, is one of our main, or helping the kids identify and pursue their purpose is one of our main gifts to them or one of our main responsibilities but it's again it's one of those things it's much easier said than done how, how do you actually do that well a parent has to give up 
some of their goals for their child. So, for example, Anne was a gift. She had perfect pitch, and she was really gifted in music. And um, she could sit at this piano right here, and she could listen to something and play it. And I thought she should be a pianist, right? With a gift like that, you should be able to do it. Well, she took piano for a while, and then she decided she didn't want to be a, do it. I want no more piano lessons. I was like, you sure? I was like, yeah, I'm sure. And so she, she stopped, you know, and that was a little disappointing for me. But then she took up ice skating, of all things, which I was not thrilled with because it meant that I had to drive early in the morning to this empty ice skating ring to let her practice. Um, but then that was something she wanted to do. And she proceeded. I mean, she went all the way to the to the expert level. You know, she was on a synchronized ice skating team. Uh, that's pretty hard to do. But that was that was what she wanted to do. And so I supported it in spite of the fact that, you know, she really could have been a great musician. And, you know, she, every they, they get to try what they want to try. And you give them some suggestions, but then don't make them, don't force them to do what it is that you think is is the right thing because maybe it, they don't want to do it and then they'll never be able to develop their passion. They all developed, you know, they all had a totally challenging um, time after college. You know, the question is like, what are you going to do now, this degree you got? Like, Susan got a degree in French and English history and lit. I was like, hmm, that sounds good. What are you going to do? <laughs> <laughs> but I never once told her not to do that. And then Aunt Janet majored in anthropology. It's like, oh, okay, now what? <laughs> good luck. <laughs> good luck. So it was actually, I made this, this anyway, I won't say it, but I, I made some comments about her anthropology degree that she didn't appreciate. <laughs> but of course, they've all done really well. You know, they managed to figure it out and enjoy what they're their life, you know, Susan, Susan didn't know how to program, you know, or do anything technical. And then she taught herself. She realized, hmm, maybe I should do that. Look, kind of interesting. And so I, I want to take you to the example with Anne and the piano. So she, she one day she came and she told you, Mom, I don't want to do it anymore. You just said, okay, fine, let's do something else. Or, or it was more challenging than that. Or because my first instinct would be, you're gifted, you just invested, I don't know, a year, two, three of your life. Right. Maybe you, you, you persist. Uh, so how did this conversation so I, go? The conversation was more like what you described. It's like, you really want to stop this, you know? Maybe you want to persist and keep it up. And, um, and, you know, so she did for a while. But it was clear that her heart wasn't in it. And, of course, I'd already, you know, I gave them a lot of opportunities so I had already taken her to the ice skating ring, and so there she was, like, wanting to ice skate all the time. The other thing she was very good at, she's a natural athlete, and so she was great at tennis. But she decided she didn't want to do tennis that much. The coach was livid. Um, she decided she wanted to do swimming. So at five years old, she was the Northern California butterfly champion. Butterfly? Really? Most kids can't get across the pool. <laughs> wow. But that was something she decided she wanted to do. So, okay, you're doing that. But, you know, how about, can you practice the piano today now? <laughs> when, after, when, when it became clear that I was just being a nagging mother, I was like, okay, I guess I, will. I lost. Okay. <laughs> so it's interesting because sports I told you we're going to come back to this I think that sport really builds character and helps build a lot of those at least traits that I'm thinking that I want my kids to have mm -hmm. and I know I played basketball when I was a kid and he taught me a lot of teams like how to be a team player and I, th I think it did a lot of good for me so it's something I'm trying to push my kids into doing sport were you deliberate on getting the kids to do sport? Do you have any point of view of how important it is to young parents to get their kids into sport? Should it be more individualistic sport like ice skating? Because my daughter is also doing ice skating. Or should we also push them to do t team sport? Because 
it, it, it teach you a little bit of different things. So how do you think about sports? So I think sports are really important. They're very important. I think kids should be in a team sport of some kind, and it can be any team. You know, so my kids did soccer, and I thought that was good. They did baseball also. Um, but then they also were, they did swimming. And being on a swim team, I'll tell you, it's a lot of work, determination, um, because they're swimming even in the, you know, when it's cold outside. And you're swimming back and forth across that pool, 25-meter pool, um, a lot. And they didn't stop doing that till the high school. So they did this all the way through their childhood. And um, it built a lot of grit in them. Because also the swim team was held at exactly the time you're supposed to have dinner, right? 5.30 at night, off you go, swim. And um, like I said, it could be freezing outside, and you're getting in that pool and you're doing it. But I didn't actually have to push on them that much. They wanted to do it. And um, it was a team thing, you know, because their friends were there. So it wasn't like they were doing it alone. So they built up a sense of community. And then there were all those swim meets, and they're cheering for the whole team. And It was a great experience for them. I think that they stopped in high school because they had so many other things to do. But Susan was, I think she was on the tennis team. And I mean, Janet, Janet was, she also was on the tennis team. But um, then Janet became a cheerleader. That was like really time consuming. Um, they all did something like that. I think sports, I'd like to recommend All kids be involved in sports, every single kid. And it can be an individual sport or it can be a team sport, but something because they learn so much in terms of character. I can't overemphasize it. And it's, it's fun for the parents, too, because you have a group, you know, of other parents who are there watching and cheering. And so then you make friends as well. It's, it's wonderful. I recommend it. But I would caution against sports where you hurt your head because, you know, little concussions pile up. They're not good. Okay, that's a good uh, tip. So I guess one thing that uh, I'm very curious to ask you is I, I read somewhere that you said, uh, let me see the quote, they all... Uh, They all did their best, but they forgave themselves. A perfectionist does not forgive themselves for doing something that isn't perfect, and they do. They don't hold themselves to blame. And I also read, I think it was Anne that said, we always have fun. We used to have fun, and we still have fun when we meet as a family. And again, just from my personal perspective, I'm like in uh, type one Enneagram, so I'm a perfectionist. And that's one of the things... I'm trying and very consciously not to pass to my kids. And I'm, I'm not a person who have fun naturally. So I am trying to almost change that or be deliberate and bring fun into our family life. So can you talk a little bit about how you did that? It sounded like it for you, it was much more natural, at least from the way your daughters describe it. And even the way you met your husband sounded like it was kind of like crazy. Crazy. <laughs> uh, But I do think it's super important, uh, a very important part of being a parent to, to teach the kids that they don't necessarily have to be perfect and fun is a very important part of life and uh, being happy is a very important part. So I'm really, really curious to, to hear how did you instill this sense of fun and that you, you even if you did a mistake, okay, we, we move on, we move forward because I think it's, it's something that is very valuable. So the first person you have to forgive whenever there's a mistake and there's a lot of mistakes is yourself you have to forgive yourself for making that mistake and a lot of people don't even think about it that way because you don't even realize that you're mad at yourself but so when you forgive yourself then you can take another step forward because I think I said earlier the only thing you can control in life is your reaction to life And so you, you, a lot of people get furious at themselves and, um, and then they get furious at their partner and that 
that controls your behavior then because when you're angry, your energy goes into that anger, even though you say, oh, I'm not mad, but you really are mad. And one of the ways to help you get through life is humor because a lot of the things that happen that aren't tragic, that is, can be seen as pretty funny. And so I have that attitude in general, just about everything um, in life. I mean, I can give you, you know, a, a crazy example. I used to take kids to New York. For 16 years, I took about 50 students to New York every year. 50, me and them, right? And there were other, usually I took other um, parents with me or I took uh, other teachers. I switched to just other teachers because the kids whose parents went, they were like, don't take my dad or something. <laughs> so I was like, okay, okay, we'll just take teachers. Um, and a lot of things happened that could have been seen as terrible. But, you know, turns out it depends on how you look at it. So I, I didn't believe in having them on a bus. I was like, hey, you guys need to learn how to navigate the city. We're going down into the subway. Everybody comes. So, you know, getting 50 kids to the, into the subway at one place is right. So I did that, got them all down. That's how we traveled all five days on the subway. But the first day, I made this mistake. I went the wrong way on the subway with 50 kids. So then they, we were divided between two cars. It's like, oh, no, we're going uptown. We're supposed to go downtown. I didn't even know there were two towns. And so I had to get half the kids off and the other half. And then I saw the train go by, and the other half were in there waving at me. So you can imagine, it was like, oh my God, what have I done? I lost half the kids. But anyway, I so fortunately, we had phones at that time. And so we called each other, and then they came back. I was like, well, this is a good experience for you, you know? You figured out how to get lost in New York City and not have a fit. So, you know, there could have been, if depending on your attitude, it could have been terrible. But for us, it was like the, the hilarious story that happened, how I managed to lose half of them and... Anyway, we all found each other. And did you train yourself to, to, to be like that, or you were always like that? I think it was more that I, I trained myself. I, I helped myself. I realized that I was making myself miserable by getting too upset. And so, um, and also I realized, in my, especially in my classes, that I'm a model for the kids. I, I found this out accidentally. Uh, one day when uh, and I overheard some of the kids teaching each other and I thought to myself my god that phrase he's using sounds just like me and I didn't I never said anything like use that and so I realized by accident that they were copying my behavior and uh, they copied the behavior of the leader of the class and so I said to myself, if I want them to react intelligently to anything that doesn't go the right way, then I have to model that for them, which is exactly what I did. And so you just started working on your mindset, basically? I just started working on it. That was years ago, on my mindset. And yeah. is there any concrete advice that you can give people here how to do that? Well, or any the, books or any exercises? Well, they can read my book and they can try some of the exercises in the book. But basically, it's a conscious thing. It's on the conscious level, again. Because when you get mad at yourself, you can't think intelligently. And you overreact to things. So... I, I'm sh there's a lot of self-help books out there, like How to Parent. How, I mean, they're like everywhere. Um, but I just, I thought to myself, I'm only making it worse for myself by showing them how angry I can be. I also always have a sense of humor about something because, in fact, life is pretty funny. <laughs> if you look at it that way. That's true. That's true. So last question is, if you had, if you could go back in time and you had to do it all over again or you could do it all over again, what would you do differently in terms of parenting, if any? Um, so I think I probably would have had them go to a summer camp that I 
didn't know about, you know, that would have had that experience. Why? Um, I think kids learn a lot of independence in a summer camp. And I think they would have had fun outdoors with their friends. And I think that would have been a good experience. Um, let's see, what else would I have them do or ha be doing differently? Um, they, I think they wrote a lot of thank you notes to people, like to their my my parents, you know, or their for gifts and things like that. But I just wonder how effective that is as a method for um, showing gratitude. And I see um, kids today; they don't even write the thank you notes anymore. So I just wonder if maybe I could have done something more effective to make kids be more grateful. I think my, my children are grateful, but I think um, I see that as a problem in society because we, we have a lot, and I think we just want more instead of being grateful for what we already have. So I guess I would, if I were doing my parenting again, I was like, must be a method out there that I could do besides just writing thank you notes. Um, whatever you're doing, you should stop and think, could my child do that on their own? Don't do for your child anything they can do for themselves. I think children need to be empowered earlier on and respected. And So my four-year-old granddaughter, she can translate between Spanish and English. I can take her wherever I want, and she can be a translator. She's four. So I think we should just believe that our kids can do it, and they will. Esther, on this note, thank you very much. It was fascinating. I definitely learned a lot, and I have a long to do and to, <laughs> to apply to my own parenting. But thank you. It was fascinating. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you for coming and for asking those questions. I really like them. Okay, great. After talking to Steve and Esther, we're already seeing that for both of them, having the kids participate in sport was very important and that they both had high expectations and at the same time a supportive parenting style. This makes me even more excited to continue looking for themes and patterns amongst these incredible parents that we'll be talking to in the future. Thank you all for listening. For show notes, please visit RaisingToRise.com. Your support is greatly appreciated and I'm looking forward to continuing the parenting journey together. <laughs>